dear brother Glenn Ostland. Recently, it has come to our awareness that you have been talking about free will and agency on your podcast. We realize that talking on your own podcast is totally something that you can choose to do, whether the universe is deterministic or not, because choice still exists, even if you fell away and lost your literal belief in determinism. We want to pretend there is room for nuanced determinists in our midst, but come on, not the ones who talk about it and spread doubts with other lax determinist disciples. We've got some borders here to maintain, after all. As we both know, you said some stuff on your podcast, and even if we totally agree with each other at the end of this, the tone of your voice might also be an important determining factor in the computation of your consequences. Please allow us to explain why you are receiving this letter. There were some young listeners of your podcast who told their parents that certain things you said about free will had damaged their belief in determinism. Reason had made slaves of them all, but then here you come and free them from that reason. Thanks a lot. Now we have to find some other way to enslave our youth all over again. This is Infants on Thrones. Baby steps. Who wants someone to preach to? The philosophies of men. I like magical toys. Who wants religion? Mingled with humor. I don't believe in them. There will be many willing to preach to you the philosophies of men mingled with humor. We are evolving. Baby steps. You can buy in this world of money. the good in everything look for the people who will set your soul free it always seems impossible until it's done look for the good in everyone all right welcome back to infants on thrones I'm Glenn Ostland, and this is episode 726, Birthing the Bodhisattva, Intentional Self-Reflection on and Through a Mormon-Formed Mind, which could very well be the title of every single episode of Infants on Thrones, as this podcast is, and always has been, intended to be, quote, an entertaining podcast about self-awareness and discovery following a Mormon faith transition, end quote. So, last week, I released a two-part episode where I responded to Sam Harris's claim that free will simply does not exist. Now, I heard from a lot of listeners about that, and let me quickly tell you just about three of them. First, I got an email from a listener who I've interacted with several times in the past. I can't say that I know them well, but I can say that I care about this person, and I care about what they've shared with me, and I want the best for this person. And I can say that for pretty much every listener that I've ever interacted with over the course of this podcast. So I won't disclose too much about what this listener shared with me, but the bottom line is that they said that they have been quite confused over the past five months. 
they thought a faith crisis was challenging enough, but soon they started questioning every aspect of their life, and they felt intense urges to, quote, run away and abandon the life I assumed I had unconsciously created, end quote. The life they assumed they had unconsciously created. Why? Why, why did they assume that? Was it because they heard people who they believe and trust tell them that things just arise outside of nowhere that are totally outside of our conscious awareness and control? Was it because they believed these authority figures and they assumed that they had no free will of any kind to do anything at all about this? Now, I got another email from a listener who really values the role that Sam Harris has played in her life, ways that Sam's meditation app has really helped her find inner peace. And this listener did not want me to discount what Sam was saying. She also gifted me a free 30-day subscription to the Waking Up app so I could check it out for myself. So I started using it, and I really enjoy it. So thank you very much for doing this for me, listener. You asked to be anonymous, so you're going to be anonymous here. And thank you for the quality conversations that you and I have had back and forth. I hope that those continue. And as I was listening to Sam's daily meditation this morning... I observed some thoughts that supposedly arose out of nowhere that I'll be sharing with you shortly. It has to do with Orange County, and I'll get to that in a minute. But lastly, I want to mention a third listener who reached out and wrote some amazingly deep and thoughtful emails about the nature of determinism and its connection to consciousness and the mind-body problem. Now, today's episode is dedicated to all three of these listeners, but this one in particular. His name is Paul. Paul sent me an article to read. It's called The Mind-Body Problem by Thomas Nagel from What Does It All Mean in 1987. So I read and responded to that. I emailed it to Paul, and then I decided to publish it on Patreon. And I'll be republishing that here for you today. So you'll hear me read and respond to The Mind-Body Problem by Thomas Nagel. And then Paul did something even more amazing. He sent me a hilarious summons to a court of love email telling me very tongue-in-cheek that I'm in danger of being excommunicated from the club of determinists, of Latter-day Atheists. No, he didn't really add that, but could have. So I'm including that summons to a court of love here today as well. It's hilarious. I had a lot of fun recording what Paul wrote. So I'm including that here today as well, along with a number of questions that Paul said that I would be asked in my disciplinary court. So I read and respond to those questions as well. And that's what you're in for for today's episode. I may throw in another little surprise or something like that. I don't know. We'll see how I feel. But before we get to any of that, I want to tell you a story. Can I tell you a story? So several years ago, when I was at church in Bloomington, Indiana, I overheard a conversation between a man and a woman. Both were friends of mine, and both were meeting each other for the very first time. And she asked him where he was from, and he said, Orange County. And she immediately lit up with excitement. Wow, I'm from Orange County, too. He smiled, and they seemed excited about making this connection, about this common place where they both grew up. So they started doing what you typically do in a situation like this. Did you know so-and-so? No, he didn't. What about this place to eat? It was awesome. Did you ever go there? It was my favorite. No, he hadn't heard of it. And they kept doing this back and forth, back and forth, getting a little more deflated with each thing in their experience growing up in Orange County that the other person hadn't heard of. 
And, you know, by the end it just kind of fizzled out and that was that. They went their separate ways. And rather than building a connection based on common things, both of them went away from that conversation feeling a little bummed out. Well, guess what? Guess what neither one of them knew at the time? There's more than one Orange County. He was from Orange County, Indiana. She was from Orange County, California. Right? So, now I said this in the episode last week, but I want to reiterate it again here. I think that my frustration with Sam Harris's claim that there's no such thing as free will stems from his definition of free will being like Orange County, California, and mine being like Orange County, Indiana, which is to say that I learned about free will from my Mormon upbringing as free agency, where I have the freedom to choose between different options placed before me. Now, I still don't exactly know where Sam Harris's definition of free will comes from or what exactly it is, but I can guess that there's a long-standing philosophical tradition that's much bigger than Mormonism that he learned about while getting his master's degree in philosophy from Stanford. And then he applied what he learned getting his PhD in neuroscience to the philosophical problem of free will. So his Orange County, my Orange County, you know. And this difference of understood meanings, the unexamined assumptions of common understanding and the conflict between one view and another, how many times does this happen every day without any of us really even knowing that it happened? How many times do we walk away thinking, that guy doesn't know a damn thing about Orange County? (laughs) Anyway, I just wanted to reiterate that self-discovery is super important to me, and this is one of the main reasons why. That means that I want to do my very best to discover and examine my blind spots. And the way that this podcast has helped me with that, through interactions with listeners, has been incredibly fruitful and fulfilling in that way. And I hope that you've all had similar experiences like this as well. Now, do you know what my number one goal is in life? It doesn't have anything to do with financial success or career goals, world travel destinations, the downfall of the Mormon church, or righting any of the world's many, many wrongs. I want to make myself the most accepting, loving, charitable, understanding, non-critical, non-judgmental person that I can possibly be. I want to drop judgment. I want to integrate my conscious and unconscious fears, insecurities, and limiting beliefs about myself and the world. I want to be able to respond to any situation from a place of calm, peace, compassion, reason, with the inner confidence that I do have at least a very small degree of willpower to freely choose within a narrow range of determined constraints how I respond to my thoughts as they automatically arise, seemingly out of nowhere. Thoughts that tell me that this person has insulted me, or that I'm not good enough, or that I'm a failure in certain areas, or that nobody's going to want to hear what I have to say, or that I'm simply a victim of circumstance with no ability to find the hidden gifts and opportunities that every challenge in life truly presents. I want to always remember that each person around me is a mirror, and any judgment that I make about them is a reflection of my own mind, my own unconscious fears, insecurities, and limiting beliefs. How I see the world tells me much more about my own internal architecture of mind than it does about the world itself. I want to put an end 
to my long-developed habits of denial and projection, where I blame others rather than seeing what's going on in my own psyche, things that block me from compassion, peacefulness, and joy. In other words, my number one goal is to be constantly mindful, self-aware, self-reflective. You might say that I want to become a bodhisattva, and you might actually understand what I mean by that if you happen to live in the same Orange County that I do. It's all, of course, still a major work in progress, and it will be for the rest of my life, which, if I'm successful, will actually contribute to righting some of the world's many wrongs, because by writing myself as a person who interacts with others in the world, I am making at least a little difference, one self-reflective mental response and reaction at a time. So that is my long introduction to an episode that I hope will be very thought-provoking and enjoyable for you. And I thank you for coming along on this journey with me. And if you've been listening to me for a while, witnessing the evolution of this podcast and the infant on a throne who has been the man behind the curtain creating it, I encourage you to reach out and say hello. Introduce yourself. Let me know who you are. Let me know what's going on in your life. And now, with no further ado, let's jump into my reaction to the mind-body problem by Thomas Nagel. All right, this thing is called The Mind-Body Problem by Thomas Nagel from What Does It All Mean, 1987. And this is something that a listener sent to me to read, and he asked me some questions about if I side with the dualistic side. I haven't read it through yet, but I just want to do it out loud and capture my thoughts as I'm doing it. So starts off by saying, let's forget about skepticism and assume the physical world exists, including your body and your brain. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's easy enough. I can assume that the physical word, world exists. And let's put aside our skepticism about other minds. I don't have any skepticism about any of this. So that's easy to put away a skepticism I don't have. I'll assume you are conscious if you assume I am. Okay. Now, what might be the relation between consciousness and the brain? Ooh, okay. Yeah, I'm just going to answer that right now. <laughs> what is the relationship between consciousness and the brain? I think the brain is a system of filters that filters consciousness in such a way that it has a particular kind of experience. And, yeah, so that that's... That's, my, that's what I think going into this. I think that consciousness... I think that consciousness arises from life. You know, so like the, the animals, there's a lot of birds flying around me right now. They're all conscious. I think even the trees that I'm looking at, I think there's an element of consciousness to the trees. I watched a, a documentary about the life of plants and how plants compete with each other for resources so there's a sense of awareness um, the documentary Fantastic Fungi that's talking about mushrooms and the mycelial network the way that they communicate the way that trees use mushrooms mycelial network to communicate with each other 
to take care of their young seedlings. You know, I mean, it's a it's a way of experiencing life that's very, very alien and foreign to our human formed brains. But when you when you look around, you see that there's consciousness that's being expressed in all of these creatures, all of these things. Um, it's not just the brain. The, the other thing, um, there's a guy named Stuart Hameroff down at University of Arizona that he's gotten a lot of slack for being woo. And um, I, I understand why. But he and Roger Penrose came up with this theory several years ago about the role that microtubules play inside of neurons. And one of the reasons that Stuart Hameroff decided to look at microtubules in the first place is because I think it was like a flatworm or a tapeworm that doesn't have a brain but does have neurons or microtubules and is still able to do the same types of things that our brains do with these neurons, with these microtubules and the role that microtubules play. There's also something once microtubules start to decay that's uh, a link to Alzheimer's. Um, and because Stuart Hameroff's uh, an anesthesiologist, he's the reason he went into that profession in the first place is because he was interested in consciousness. He wanted to know what is it that turns it on, what is it that turns it off, why is it that we can put a chemical in the brain that we're operating and the brain's responding in all other ways, but the conscious experience of it is blocked from you. You're just not aware, you don't feel the pain. Um, and you're asleep, you're not aware of what's going on. So he, he's an interesting person um, to, to look at with consciousness. The other thing that has kind of informed the way that I look at this question is um, Dr. Evan Alexander, Eben Alexander, who had a near-death experience. And I talked about this in a series last year called uh, The Insatiable Need for Justice and... Uh, whatever it was about meandering search for karma. And that's where I first learned about Eben Alexander and this near-death experience and his, his brain was basically eaten away by, I think it was E. coli or something like that, to the point where whatever his near-death experience was, he, had, he came out of it with all of these memories that he thought couldn't have been created by his brain because the parts of his brain that would normally create that had been eaten away. And I, anyway, that, that was interesting. So in his book, he speculated that the brain isn't what creates and generates consciousness, but it's a filter for it. Um, and that makes sense to me. It makes sense to me that our five senses, and we've got more than five senses, you know, but, but that our, our main five senses are what determine our experience of, of reality, how we perceive the outside world, and that's a result of human evolution and a result of our brain. So, it, so anyway, I think of the, the relation between consciousness and the brain as it's a, it's a way that consciousness is filtered to give us a certain type of perceptive experience and there are all kinds of perceptive consciousness experiences going on in the world all around us you're the only one having yours I'm the only one having mine the tree's the only one having it <laughs> anyway that's what I think alright back to the reading 
Everybody knows that what happens in consciousness depends on what happens in the body. If you stub your toe, it hurts. If you close your eye, you can't see what's in front of you. If you bite into a Hershey bar, you taste chocolate. If someone conks you on the head, you pass out. The evidence shows that for anything to happen in your mind or consciousness, something has to happen in your brain. You wouldn't feel any pain from stubbing your toe if the nerve in your leg and spine didn't carry impulses from the toe to your brain. We don't know what happens in the brain when you think, I wonder whether I have time to get a haircut this afternoon, but we're pretty sure, we're pretty sure that something does, something involving chemical and electrical changes in the billions of nerve cells that your brain is made of. Okay, yeah. I've got no issue with any of that. In some cases, we know how the brain affects the mind. This, this, this used to confuse me a lot. It, it took me a while to realize there was a distinction between brain and mind. Because, you know, like when I was a kid growing up, I mean, it was probably not until I was in my early to mid-40s that I started thinking there was a distinction between the mind and the brain that the brain is the physical matter, the biologically evolved thing, and the mind is the concept for what it is that the brain is doing. Um, the, the sense of having memories and thoughts, you know, the psyche, thoughts and feel, feelings. Um, so in some cases we know how the brain affects the mind and how the mind affects the brain. We know, for instance, that the stimulation of certain brain cells near the back of the head produces visual experiences. And we know that when you decide to help yourself to another piece of cake, certain other brain cells send out impulses to the muscles in your arm. We don't know many of the details, but it's clear that there are complex relations between what happens in your mind and the physical processes that go into your brain. So far, all of this belongs to science, not philosophy. But there is also a philosophical question about the relation between mind and brain, and it's this. If, is your mind something different from your brain, though connected to it, or is it your brain? Are your thoughts, feelings, perceptions, sensations, and wishes things that happen in addition to all of the physical processes in your brain, or are they themselves some of those physical processes? What happens, for instance? when you bite into a chocolate bar. The chocolate melts on your tongue and causes chemical changes in your taste buds. The taste buds send some electrical impulses along the nerves leading from your tongue to your brain. And then those impulses reach the brain. And when those impulses reach the brain, they produce further physical changes there. Finally, you taste the taste of chocolate. But what is that? Could it just be a physical event in some of your brain cells? Or does it have to be something of a completely different kind? You know, I, it's funny. I was thinking about this very thing last night. And it might have even been about the taste of chocolate. But I, no, I think it was more about the feeling of fear. Um, thinking about people who like watching horror movies. I've never, I've never really been one that likes watching horror movies. But I've watched a few recently um, with my daughter and, and with Cammie's kids. And... People seem to feel the same feeling that we all call fear. And that was interesting. Why? What, why do, you know, so like do peop, when people taste chocolate, is it the same taste? <laughs> does, does chocolate taste the same way to me as it does to you? Or if I 
put your brain in my head and tasted chocolate, would it taste like fish? You know, I, I don't know. And that, but that's just what I've become used to calling chocolate is my blue, your blue, or is it yellow or something? You know, it, that, that's, um, I think those experiences are called qualia, how you experience something. And so this is asking the question here, where, where does that come from? Is, is that qualia experience of life something separate from what your brain is doing? Or is it what your brain is doing? And, gee, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I kind of lean more to it's what your brain is doing. But... But I also think, you know, like when, when you look at Carl Jung and the collective unconscious, it's really compelling. Um, even Rupert Sheldrake with uh, Morphic Resonance, this idea that there could be shared data, shared experience, even, even shared through maybe mirror neurons that... Um, I, I see something in somebody else and it activates my mirror neurons and I'm able to mirror or get some kind of a feeling what they're feeling. Um, you know, is, is there a collective unconscious that exists outside of the human brain? I don't know, but th- those are interesting questions to me. Okay. Um, if a scientist took off the top of your skull and looked into your brain while you were eating the chocolate bar, all he would see is a gray mass of neurons. Yeah, but <laughs> that isn't everything that's there, right? All, all he would see is that, but we also know that our eyes filter out uh, 99.9%, you know, whatever it, of what's in the environment around us. We're only seeing a very small sliver of what's there. So is it, is it possible that there are, there are things that the brain is doing? Like I've, I've heard people talk about the brain having some kind of electromagnetic field that it generates, like a, like a, like a force field or something, that that's where your experiences are happening. I, I don't know if there's anything to that or not, but I, I know there's like brain waves, like delta waves and beta waves and things like that that your brain does. I don't think that a scientist would see those waves if they cut open the skull and they were looking at the brain, at least not with the naked eye. You'd have to have special instruments to be able to detect those waves. But how can how can we detect things outside the range of what we're able to detect? And does that mean that those things don't exist or that we just haven't developed the technology to detect them? I think it means we haven't de- developed the technology to detect them. So if a scientist took off the top of your skull and looked into your brain while you were eating the chocolate bar, all he would see is a gray mass of neurons. True. But that doesn't necessarily mean that that's all that's there. If he used instruments to measure what was happening inside, he would detect complicated physical processes of many different kinds. But would he find the taste of chocolate? Not yet. Maybe someday. <laughs> but, but not yet. I, I love that question. I love it. It seems as if 
he couldn't find it in your brain because your experience of tasting chocolate is locked inside your mind in a way that makes it unobservable to anyone else, even if he opens up your skull and looks inside your brain. Yeah, and it's possible that the experience of tasting chocolate is a collective shared experience that isn't unique to any one human being, but is shared by all of us. How? Where is that stored in the internet of all things? <laughs> where, is, where is that experience? Where is that qualia coming from? Your experiences are inside your mind with a kind of insideness that is different from the way that your brain is inside your head. Someone else can open up your head and see what's inside, but they can't cut open your mind and look into it, at least not in the same way. It's not just that the taste of chocolate is a flavor and therefore can't be seen. Suppose a scientist were crazy enough to try to observe your experience of tasting chocolate by licking your brain while you ate a chocolate bar. First of all, <laughs> that's, that's silly <laughs> and gross. First of all, your brain probably wouldn't taste like chocolate to him. <laughs> Not even the little place where you're getting the chocolate taste from, right? But even if it did, he wouldn't have succeeded in getting into your mind and observing your experience of tasting chocolate. He would just have discovered, oddly enough, that when you taste chocolate, your brain changes so that it tastes like chocolate to other people. He would have his taste of chocolate and you would have yours. Or maybe he would discover it's the exact same taste of chocolate. But that's still his brain that's creating that sensation. And whatever those electrical impulses that are going into his brain is being interpreted as like, ah, this is chocolate. Because it's being compared with what he has identified as the taste of chocolate in the past. And going, ah, match. Anyway. It's what happens in your experience... Oh, if what happens in your experience is inside your mind in a way in which what happens in your brain is not, it looks as though your experiences and other mental states can't just be physical states of your brain. There has to be more to you than your body with its humming nervous system. Yeah, or there is more to our body and our humming nervous system than we're able to really see and detect and understand at this point. It's possible. One possible conclusion is that there has to be a soul attached to your body in some way which allows them to interact. If that's true, then you're made up of two very different things, a complex physical organism and a soul which is purely mental. This view is called dualism for obvious reasons. Yeah, but, but really all you're doing with that dualistic view right there is saying there's stuff that I can see and there's stuff that I can't see and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put the things that I can see in this one category and call it your physical body. And then, then the things that I can't see, I'm going to put it outside and say, well, this is something mysterious like a soul. And they've got to be two different things. Instead of it's all part of the same thing, but you just parts of it you can detect and parts of it you can't. I mean, because of the way that we filter information through our eyes. I, that's so... Am I a dualist in this sense? No, I don't think so. I, I don't think that I think that they're... I wouldn't think that they're two separate things. I, I think that the perception of them being separate is due to our own limitations and being able to perceive. But many people think that belief in a soul is old-fashioned and unscientific. 
because it is both of those things. <laughs> Every, everything else in the world is made of physical matter. Well, no. I, I mean, everything else in the world is made of physical matter. Like, everything in the world is made out of quantum energy. Do you consider quantum energy to be physical matter? You know, the, the, the quantum energy that makes up the quarks and the electrons and the protons that makes up the atoms, that makes up the molecules. I mean, as, as it's being organized and doing different things, it becomes physical matter. But if, we, if you looked into a brain and you saw the neurons, you'd need to have a really powerful microscope to see the neurons, but you, you wouldn't see the energy that's in there. You wouldn't see the atoms you wouldn't see the subatomic energy so are you calling that part of the physical world or not it it's the same stuff it's just organized in different ways right um okay everything else in the world is made of physical matter different combinations of the same chemical elements why shouldn't we be our bodies grow by a complex physical process from the single cell produced by the joining of a sperm and egg at conception. And now we're going to get some piano in the background from Aaron. Way to go, Aaron. This kid's amazing, by the way. This is Cammy's son. He's 16. And about a year and a half ago, he decided, eh, I'm going to play the piano. And like within two weeks, he was playing Rachmaninoff and never had a formal lesson. Just amazing talent, this kid, anyway. Is that coming from his brain? <laughs> is it coming from somewhere outside of him? It's coming from inside of him. Um, our bodies grow a complex physical process from the single cell produced by the joining of a sperm and an egg at conception. That's right. Ordinary matter is added gradually in such a way that cells turn into a baby here we go, with arms, legs, eyes, ears, and a brain. That's Rachmaninoff you're hearing. And to move and feel and see, and eventually to talk and think. Some people believe that this complex physical system is sufficient by itself to give rise to mental life. Why shouldn't it be? Anyway, how can mere philosophical arguments show that it isn't? Philosophy can't tell us what stars or diamonds are made of, so how can it tell us what people are or aren't made of? The view that people consist of nothing but physical matter and that their mental states are physical states in their brains is called physicalism, or sometimes materialism. Physicalists don't have a specific theory of what processes in the brain can be identified as the experiences of tasting chocolate, for instance, but they believe that mental states are just states of the brain and that there's no philosophical reason to think that they can't be. Yeah, and I, I think the only issue that I have with materialists here is I don't, I don't know that they extend materialism past what they can see and perceive. Um, where, I, where I think there's a lot more going on than just we're aware of, anyway. The details will have to be discovered by science. 
the idea that we might discover that experiences are really brain processes, just as we've discovered that other familiar things have a real nature that we couldn't have guessed until it was re revealed by scientific investigation. Yeah. For instance, it turns out that diamonds are composed of carbon, the same material as coal. The atoms are just differently arranged. And water, as we all know, is composed of hydrogen and oxygen, even though those two elements are nothing like water when taken by themselves. So while it might be surprising that the experience of tasting chocolate could be nothing but a complicated physical event in your brain, it would be no stranger than lots of things that have been discovered about the real nature of ordinary objects and processes. Scientists have discovered what light is, how plants grow, how muscles move. It's only a matter of time before they discover the biological nature of the mind. That's what physicalists think. Well, I kind of think that too. I don't know. It's only a matter of time as, as we develop greater technology to discover what's beyond our ability to perceive right now. As we start becoming more aware of the things we're not aware of now. Yeah, I, I think eventually this nature of mind will be perfectly understood and, and be perfectly understood to be um, materialist in nature, you know, part not separate, not dualist, not separate, but part of the whole. A dualist would, would reply that those things are different. When we discover the chemical composition of water, for instance, we are dealing with something that is clearly out there in the physical world, something we can all see and touch. When we find out that it's made up of hydrogen and oxygen atoms, we're just breaking down an external physical substance into smaller physical parts. It is an essential feature of this way of analysis that we're not giving a chemical breakdown of the way water looks, feels, and tastes to us. That's the qualia. Those things go on in our inner experience, not in the water that we've broken down into atoms. Yeah, and if we were experiencing those things from a different filtering system, it would look different, it would probably feel different, it would probably taste different. So our experiences of what that thing is, is determined by our, our filter system, by our mind. The physical or chemical analysis of water leads them aside. But to discuss that tasting chocolate was really just a brain process, we would have to analyze something mental. Not an externally observed physical substance, but an inner taste sensation, in terms of parts that are physical. And there is no way that a large number of physical events in the brain, however complicated, could be the parts out of which a taste sensation was composed. Why? Let me read that again. There is no way that a large number of physical events in the brain, however complicated, could be the parts out of which a taste sensation was composed. Oh, he's saying that this is what a dualist would say? Uh, a physical whole cannot be analyzed into smaller physical parts, or a physical whole can be analyzed into smaller physical parts, but a mental process can't be. Physical parts can't, just can't add up to a mental whole. I, I'm not totally following his logic right here. I'm, I'm probably missing something. There's another possible view, which is different from both dualism and physicalism. I guess he, he, was, he was summarizing the dualistic argument there, and that's why it doesn't totally make sense to me. Um, there's another possible view 
which is different from both dualism and physicalism. Dualism is the view that you consist of a body plus a soul and that your mental life goes on in your soul. Physicalism is the view that your mental life consists of physical processes in your brain. But another possibility is that your mental life goes on in your brain, yet that all those experiences, feelings, thoughts, and desires are not physical processes in your brain. This would mean that the gray mass of billions of nerve cells in your skull is not just a physical object. It has lots of physical properties, great quantities of chemical and electrical activity go on in it, but it has mental processes going on in it as well. The view that the brain is the seat of consciousness, but that its conscious states are not just physical states, is called dual aspect theory, or property dualism. Boy, am I going to be quizzed on that later? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love the precision of language. Or this, it's not that, it's this. this is, th- these are the s- arbitrary sounds in the English language that we're going to make to say what this thing is. Those sounds themselves have physical properties? <laughs> anyway, it is called that because it means that when you bite into a chocolate bar, this produces in your brain a state or process with two aspects. A physical aspect involving various chemical and electrical changes and a mental aspect, the flavor experience of chocolate. Yeah, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't feel comfortable dividing those as two things as if there's like this separate thing. Uh, yeah. And even if they are separate things, they're operating together like gears you know, in a cause and effect relationship. So they're still part of the same machinery, still part of the same process. So I, yeah, I I don't tend to look at these things as separate in that way. Um, When this process occurs, A scientist looking into your brain will be able to observe the physical aspect, but you yourself will undergo from the inside the mental aspect. You will have the sensation of tasting chocolate. If this were true, your brain itself would have an inside that could not be reached by an outside observer, even if he cut it open. It would feel or taste a certain way to you to have that process going on in your brain. How, how did Stephen Hawking talk? Does anybody know? You know, Stephen Hawking, this brilliant guy, won a Nobel Prize theorizing the nature of black holes. But he had that disease where he couldn't talk and he was sitting in a chair. And yet you could hear his voice. You know, because he's, he's talking through some kind of a speech identification thing. Is that little micro-movements that he's making with his fingers? Or, or has some kind of technology developed to be able to read thoughts and translate them into, into words? It's coming. If it, if it isn't here and fully all developed yet, it's coming. Like At, at some point, the, the thoughts that we think, they're all like wavelengths, you know, like waves of energy in our brain. That's what thoughts and emotions are. And I'm quite convinced that there will come a time when there's technology 
you know, where Siri will, we, we won't need to say, you know, if, if I say, hey, Siri, right now, my phone's going to freak out, so I'm trying not to say it. But if, <laughs> if um, there, there will be a time where our technology is able to read our thoughts and pick up on certain vibrational frequencies. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, and now I don't remember even why I went on to that. So. I, guess, I guess it was when it said, if this were true, your brain itself would have an inside that could not be reached by an outside observer, even if you cut it open. I, yeah, I, I think at some point there will be technology that's we're able to read whatever it is that is... Um, the, the, the physical aspects of the taste of chocolate that would be able to, to be identified and read. We're just not there yet, but I, I think we will at some point. Um, it would feel or taste a certain way to you to have that process going on in your brain. We could express this view by saying that you are not a body plus a soul, that you are just a body, but your body, or at least your brain, is not just a physical system. It's an object with both physical and mental aspects. It can be dissected, but it also has the kind of inside that can't be exposed by dissection. There's something it's like from the inside to taste chocolate because there's something it's like from the inside to have your brain in the condition that is produced when you eat a chocolate bar. Physicalists believe that nothing exists but the physical world that can be studied by science, the world of objective reality. But when they have to find room somehow for, for feelings, desires, thoughts, and experiences for you and me in such a world, there seem to be two very different kinds of things going on in the world. The things that belong to physical reality, which many different people can observe from the outside, and those other things that belong to mental reality, which each of us experience from the inside in its own case. This isn't true only of human beings. Dogs and cats and horses and birds seem to be conscious, and fish and ants and beetles probably are too. Yeah. I already said that, man. <laughs> Who knows where it stops? Exactly. Who knows where it stops? Who, who's to say that the trillions of cells in our bodies aren't conscious in some way? That, they, that they're not, that they don't have some kind of awareness. You know, I, what I do know about cells is that there are openings in the membrane that will allow things to come into the cell and things from the inside to go out of the cell. That's how a cell excretes, gets rid of things outside the cell. And there's certain triggers that will say, okay, go ahead and open up the cell membrane, let the thing out. Go ahead and open up the cell membrane, let the thing in. And even if you're looking at it as just a completely deterministic system, if X, then Y, that there's a stimulus in the environment, then do this. In, in order to respond to that, there has to be an awareness that the environment has changed so that now I can open up. And that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a choice that a cell would go, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Mm, I am going to do that. So I don't know if cells would have a free will <laughs> in that sense. I, they could, but I don't know. But but it it seems to me quite reasonable to think that there is a level of consciousness and awareness that's going on there. Um, of course, it's going to be quite different from ours because we've got 
this complicated brain that's connected to our eyes and ears and nose and feeling and we like the taste of chocolate. We won't have an adequate general conception of the world until we can explain how, when a lot of physical elements are put together in the right way, they form not just a functioning biological organism, but a conscious being. Okay. And that was The Mind-Body Problem by Thomas Nagel from What Does It All Mean, 1987. Read for your great joy and pleasure and commented on by Glenn Ostland of Infants on Thrones. <laughs> Dear Brother Glenn Ostland, Recently, it has come to our awareness that you have been talking about free will and agency on your podcast. We realize that talking on your own podcast is totally something that you can choose to do whether the universe is deterministic or not, because choice still exists, even if you fell away and lost your literal belief in determinism. We want to pretend there is room for nuanced determinists in our midst, but come on, not the ones who talk about it and spread doubts with other lax determinist disciples. We've got some borders here to maintain, after all. As we both know, you said some stuff on your podcast, and even if we totally agree with each other at the end of this, the tone of your voice might also be an important determining factor in the computation of your consequences. Please allow us to explain why you are receiving this letter. There were some young listeners of your podcast who told their parents that certain things you said about free will had damaged their belief in determinism. Reason had made slaves of them all, but then here you come and free them from that reason. Thanks a lot. Now we have to find some other way to enslave our youth all over again. Well, as it happens, those very real parents really called me on the telephone and told on you, like for reals. You may have heard rumors that I became aware of your activities from a letter that came from those higher up than me in the Strengthening Neural Pathways Committee, which definitely does not exist. Well, yes, it does exist now that you mention it, but trust me, I don't even know what that committee does, so you're going to have to ask the other super big important guy above me if you want to know more about that. He went to some pretty good schools, and also probably learned about science, especially ornithology. Anyway, back to my point. We just need you to come into our totally fair court of love so we can decide whether we will have to take away your determinism recommend or whether some other measures may be necessary to get you back on the right track and all the way into the end zone. Rest assured, the outcome of this court of love is not predetermined based on the information we currently have at present. That is why we need you to come into the court so we can ask you certain questions and use your answers to help us determine whether you are only a little bit guilty or super guilty. After which, we will have some light refreshments, some sugar cookies from the grocery store, and one of those tall clamshell boxes that arranges the cookies like halfway fallen dominoes. This is in the similitude of how dominoes fall down, one after the other, 
in a deterministic way that is easy for our brains to understand. After which, we will use the information you provide, plus the extra glucose in our brains, plus the things we already think about you, to determine your outcome in a non-random way that really properly weighs all the evidence. So yes, the outcome will be totally determined, but the main point is that it is not predetermined by any of our brains right now, since we know that a man or woman cannot comprehend all things unless they stand outside of the stream of all experience, which means they would have to be looking at four-dimensional space-time from the fifth-dimensional perspective. The guys in the fifth dimension can definitely tell you this is going to work out, but they're probably more interested in looking at fifth-dimensional TED Talks on YouTube than interfering with our four-dimensional space-time. Bummer, right? Because if they'd just call us once in a while to reveal something useful, maybe we could look cooler by being able to predict stuff. As it stands, the best we can do is claim that our recent name change plus a home study program is pretty good evidence that we do have a pretty good fifth dimensional link up. So yeah, we'll be doing all that stuff, after which we will all get into our cars and drive to our homes. Oh, we almost forgot to mention this. The meeting will take place in the scientific outpost on Antarctica in about a week. You are totally free to bring some character witnesses along with you, but they have to totally believe in determinism already, with no faking. They must present a valid, unexpired determinism recommend, which matches the name on a valid and also unexpired government-issued ID or passport. We promise we will really pretend to listen to them as they try to talk you out of this great big mess you got yourself into, but they cannot be in the room at the same time with you or with each other. They're just going to have to wait outside the building until our bouncer guy calls them in, because we're kind of scared that you have way more brain power than us. And also, a lot of supporters in the parking lot who have fallen away from determinism, and they might use some of their free will to make us feel afraid. Or if we let them come in and use the toilets, they might make a big giant doo-doo in one and clog it up. And we don't have janitors anymore, so one of us is going to have to use the plunger and clean that up ourselves, and we've already determined that we just do not want to do that. And just so that you know this up front, because we heard some other church made this mistake recently, so we'll say this right now. If you bring your smartphone with you, then you're going to have to let us install anti-porn software on it, so we don't have to worry about what you're scrolling through with that weird smile on your face while we lecture you. Please know that we're only thinking about kicking you out of our club, and basically banning you from all wonderful things from here on out and through time and all eternity unless you get back on track. We're only doing this out of a genuine consent for your well-being. Because social exclusion really helps change people's minds. We care so much for that one lost sheep, and this has nothing to do with making an example out of you in order to intimidate the other 99 podcasting professionals who let's be honest, seem to pop up like gosh dang heck whack-a-moles these days. What is it with these podcasters? Am I right? Don't get me started. Don't even get me started. Well, if we do end up silencing other nuanced determinists, that's just a secondary result that we super-duper hope will also happen. With sincere, honest, genuine love, that's a three-patterned adjective. Your assigned D-Hood leader 
not D-Bag, Elder Paul P. Paulison of the First Quorum of Determinism, or something like that. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Paul, for writing that and sending me that, <laughs> that uh, summons to be excommunicated from the, what is it, the, the super-duper determined club of determinism, whatever it is. Um, so then, in addition to the summons letter, I was also given um, some sample questions that I'll need to respond to to test whether or not I'm a good determinist or not. Uh, and so I took the liberty to answer them right here and right now anyway. So uh, I, I recorded this and I sent it to Paul, and I'm just going to include this for you here as well. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, happy May 1st. Thanks for supporting Infants on Thrones. All right, Paul. I'm gonna I'm gonna read your uh, your questions. If we held a court of love, what questions you would ask? You say here's one or two, and then there's like twelve. <laughs> All right. Uh, which I guess twelve is one and two, right next to each other. So let's see what I can do with these. I've read through them once, but I haven't really thought about what I'm going to say. So, Do you agree that the reason you're not a rattlesnake is that your mother and father were not rattlesnakes? Um, partly. I agree with that. Um, I, uh, also, because I didn't just poof into a rattlesnake right before you said that question. Um, you know, like if we're if we're playing in the game of uh, non-reality where we can just like make anything happen because we want to for some kind of arbitrary thought experiment where my parents suddenly become poof into rattlesnakes or whatever <laughs> now that's not the reason but like from a determined if two rattlesnakes copulate how do rattlesnakes do it I don't know and uh, they would not have a human child they would have another rattlesnake. And so I, I agree with that. So point determinism on that, I guess. So, I mean, in general, yeah, I agree. I'm not a rattlesnake because my father, but come on. So what? That doesn't, I mean, the, the thing is in this court of love, you haven't defined what free will is. What do you mean by free will? What, what is it that we're arguing for here? Free will that I, that if... If I wanted to, if my mom and dad were rattlesnakes and I wanted to be something other than a rattlesnake, then I would have the free will to do it. Is that really how people use free will? I, I just, I'm not familiar enough with this idea of free will that people have that has to be uh, smacked down. <laughs> I, I just, I don't, I've never thought of free will like that. So it's just a, an alien concept to me. Do you agree that if I had been born as Al Capone with the exact DNA and the totality of his experiences that I would have done all the same things as he did? Well, the, you know, you baked the answer right into the question, the totality of all of his experiences right there. You're duplicating every single experience. See, here's the thing with this question, though. If I was born as Al Capone, 
right there. I mean, it's just a... You're suggesting that there is something different to the Al Capone, Al Capone that existed in history because now I'm Al Capone. So there's, you've introduced new variables and that would make me think that there would likely be new experiences, different experiences. But you're like, well, you can't go back in time and do you. But I, what would that mean? I'm born as Al Capone. I I don't I don't really I don't understand the question. Um, if I've been born as Al Capone with the exact DNA and the totality of his experiences that I would have done all the same things as he did. I I still think that if, like, if somehow I was able to, to put on a virtual, virtual reality goggles and what these virtual, this, this virtual reality game lets you go back in history and become any character and you have all of the same deterministic influences in your life as they had in theirs. That includes the the genes, it includes the environment, the, the place, the time, the culture. But even then, like, have you ever seen the movie Run, Lola, Run? Run, Lola, Run's perfect for this kind of thought experiment because it, it plays out the exact same scenario three times, but in each time, there's a little something different that happens. Like in one, she she trips and falls as she's walking down the stairs. So she walks out of her house a split second later than the previous time she did it. And as a result, she doesn't get hit by a car. And there's like this other thing that happened and just like these little domino effect, also still determinism, but this random act of falling down the stairs or whatever, um, it changed things. So if, if I went back and I was playing this video game of Al Capone and I knew that I was doing, then yes, there would be that like Glenn me that smuggled into it. Um, but if, if you're saying if Al Capone is born with those genetics and the conditions that he was in and you run that simulation a hundred times, would you get the exact same result a hundred times? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think there would be because there's so many small micro choices that everybody around is making, that he's making, there'd be some similarities, but there'd be differences if it was really a clean slate each time. Um, but if things happened exactly the way that they did, then it would be exactly the same way, and you're just it's just a tautology. You know, so I, and and this is when like Sam's like people accuse me of having philosophical arguments that this is just a philosophical argument, but this is rooted in real life experience. Oh yeah, these first two questions aren't. <laughs> um, I and I don't think this is because I think that I'm separate from the rest of the universe. Um, uh, or a trick of the ego. I think it's just the way that we experience things as a part of the universe, as a part of what we are. Anyway, what are the benefits of believing in free will? Well, again, I, I'm not. 
I'm not quite sure what the definition of free will is. Um, but that metacognitive state that I talked about in the last email of being aware that there are options that are in front of me that I can choose, um, even though there's different factors involved that could be influencing my choice and push me to lean one way or another or stuff like that, I still make a choice. What's the benefits of believing in free will? It's, you know, I'll, I'll go with your Wayne Gretzky. You gave me like a get out of jail free card here, the Wayne Gretzky quote, you miss 100% of the goals that you don't take. Um, yeah, so so with, with free will, I'm able to correct errors in myself. I'm able to learn and, and make improvements because I'm free to make a choice. I'm, I'm free to... Um, yeah, and, and by free, it means it's not predetermined. That It's not a predeter predetermined if I'm going to choose between A or B or A or B or C or however limited number of choices are in front of me. That's, that's the benefit, I think. What are the drawbacks of believing in free will? I don't know. I don't think there are any drawbacks in believing in... At least the way that I'm defining free will without really defining it is a a non-determinist a, a non-fated non-predestined outcome where there's choice is that is that free will? i don't know could it be possible that other minds do not exist so i don't think so i don't think that's possible so all of them are deterministically like westworld hosts but the westworld hosts did have minds I watched it. <laughs> Dolores was able to find her way out of that maze, <laughs> whatever whatever that little maze game was, and realized that it was her own voice, her own programming that she was hearing the whole time. That was her mind. Um, her mind was the experience that the program was creating for her. But your own mind does exist and has free will, such that the best orientation toward the world is to believe about yourself. Is this solipsism that you're describing here? Um, no, I, 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 again, this is like one of those philosophical, this isn't real, real world stuff that we're talking about here. So I, I yeah, no. Is it possible to detect whether determinism is true or not? Um... What are we saying determinism is? That everything is a result of whatever came before it, happening exactly the way that it did? Um, I don't know how that would not be true. Um, I, I think just the question is, when you're, when you're factoring in all of the things that happened before those things, how many of those things were the result of conscious choices that were made and how many were fated where there wasn't a choice? There wasn't a conscious choice because there's going to be a large majority of influences and factors that are outside of that conscious choice. But there is that small metacognitive state of awareness where a choice can be made 
and so the totality of prior causes is a mixture of mostly non-conscious, unaware, uncontrollable factors and a small amount of conscious choices. But what happened is still a result of all of those things happening together, all of those dominoes falling together, right? Um, I, don't, I don't know, man. I'm just... It's what seems right to me. If determinism is true, should we all throw up our hands and quit? No, because determinism is not fate. It's not predestination. I, I think if determinism is true, we should all be much more careful about what we're doing. <laughs> you know, like, if we're, what was I? I, I listened to a podcast uh, a while ago, and they were talking about when um, Ford started making cars. They didn't, they didn't have any way of knowing at the time the, the way that they would have a negative impact on the environment with, you know, exhaust and pollution and things like that. Like they just didn't, they didn't know. Um, if they had known, would they have chosen to not do it because they didn't want to, or would they have chosen cleaner uh, ways of developing a combustion engine? Uh, so I, I think determinism, because they, they didn't have that knowledge at the time, things played out the way that they did. But if they would have had that knowledge at the time and they just didn't consider it, they didn't look ahead, they didn't do a very thorough risk-to-benefit analysis with all of the data that they had available to them. You know? So if determinism is true, should we all throw up our hands and quit? I think no. I think quite the opposite. And I don't even think it's an if determinism is true. Determinism is true, but it's not fate. And that's the distinction that it's so tricky to get... Like, how do you tease out that distinction? Um, yeah, should we all throw up our hands and quit? No, we should pay even more attention and make really good choices with those little slivers of metacognitive awareness that we're given that it deterministically just arises. If determinism is true, how can being a life coach help anyone? By showing them the thoughts that you think have an impact on the way that you feel and you didn't know, did you? Did you realize that the thoughts that you think and the stories that you tell are filtering and shaping your experience of reality? They're what determine it, your thoughts and your feelings. And you do have the ability to make some changes in the way that you think about things. Huge. And, and, and through small and simple means, great things come to pass, right? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's how. And there's your Wayne Gretzky get-out-of-jail-free card. Thank you for that. Is it possible that determinism is only true about the past but not true about the future? No, I, I feel like, Paul, you're, the, the way you're using determinism here is fate, that you're talking about fate, not determinism, because determinism just says... The dominoes are going to fall where they will. And that for the past or for the future, everything's determined by what comes before it. Um, except any entity who can 
see all of it from outside the stream of our four-dimensional universe. Now, are you saying this tongue-in-cheek, or do you really buy into this four-dimensional, five-dimensional existence? I've just recently come across discussions about four-dimension and five-dimension. And uh, I find it a really fascinating idea, like multiple dimensions. I mean, I guess there's this um, quantum gravity research group that I've watched some YouTube videos on for for the last few years. And they talk about, I think, eight-dimensional quasi-crystal that projects into a four-dimensional quasi-crystal. And then the result of that is our three-dimensional experience or something. They've got some formulae. I don't understand it. But the videos are cool. Quantum gravity research group. I like them. Um, can people believe in free will and still gain all the big benefits I claim to get from determinism? Oh, for sure, yeah. Like the case of the axe man and the bear, or is it possible to believe others have free will and still harbor the exact feelings about the man as a bear? Yeah, so... Okay, I'm going to I'm going to put a pin in that one, Paul. I'm going to go back to that one because I want to actually go back to that other email and read um those cases and respond to each one of them. But yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because I was glad to see that that's what determinism helps you with to be more charitable towards others and forgiving, but I don't think that you need a deterministic view to be that way. So, I'll explain that later. Um if we take a consequential, consequential, consequentialist approach and weigh the answer based on the likely outcomes, would we argue that teaching free will is better than teaching determinism because teens these days are hard enough to motivate already? I think I heard somewhere that teaching determinism leads people to make less ethical choices. That's an interesting, um, that's an interesting something to throw in the gears of the paradise cycle painting Sam made of how everything would be better if we just all believed in the D. Um, I, I do think that if determinism gets confused with um, fatalism, which it seems like it does, uh, or fate, I don't know if that's called fatalism or not, but um, I think that can lead to a lot of people feeling nihilistic and depressed and like there's no point and that they don't have any control over their lives and that they could go into victim mentality more. I got an email uh, from a listener who, she didn't go into a ton of detail about it, but it sounded to me like that was her case. She she went into a tailspin because she thought that everything had already been determined for her and she didn't have any quote unquote free will or that, that that little sliver of metacognitive awareness didn't have, didn't, didn't cut it. <laughs> you know, because people said, oh, if you've got a little sliver of metacognitive awareness, then that's the ghost in the machine. That's something that's outside of reality, and there's nothing outside of reality, so you're believing in a fantasy. No, it's part of reality. It's what our deterministic biology is doing. It's, 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 our brain is giving us this creating this where we are experiencing that is that is what we are that awareness that metacognitive thing anyway um all right so let me go back to the other one and see 
the big benefits of determinism. Okay, here we go. You find it easier to forgive others. Okay. And and I assume you're saying because they, you don't view them as being culpable or responsible for their actions because they were predetermined, so it's easier to forgive them than if you think that they intended harm and meant harm and wanted to do harm, then it's harder to forgive them. Um, it's not for me, because forgiveness for me isn't about either letting them off the hook or whatever. It's about accepting that this is something that happened, and my wishing that it didn't doesn't change the fact that it did. I mean, so there's something deterministic about that, right? And if I'm holding hatred or malice or anger or anything like that in my mind towards this person, um, I'm hurting me. It's, it's that Fred Laskin thing, the Stanford forgiveness study. Because I, I, I recognize that forgiveness is for my own mental health. Not, I'm not letting somebody off the hook. I'm not allowing sin to grow and promulgate in the world because I haven't expressed enough outrage um, and I haven't, you know, I've forgiven them and then I'm being permissive. Yeah, I, so I take that mindset and I find it easy to forgive others even if I think they did it on purpose. Easier to accept myself and past mistakes. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that it does, it does that for you. That's cool. I, I don't, I think it's easier to accept myself and past mistakes because I'm still able to look and say, with that metacognitive choice that I made, I still didn't have all of the information that I have now. Like if, if I would have known then what I know now. I know that's an expression that we use. It doesn't really mean like I would have made a different choice. It's saying I learned something from it. And I'm grateful that I learned something from it. And when I could see that hidden gift that I learned from it, that past mistake, it takes the sting out of it, and I have gratitude for it, and that makes it easier to accept myself and my past mistakes, because I see, oh, there was a benefit in this after all. It wasn't just bad. There's more to it than being just bad. More compassion for self and others. This, for me, is the real meaning of the New Testament phrase, there but for the will of God go I, which admits that if I were born into your shoes, I'd have the same challenges. Yeah, I I think that's awesome. I, I don't think that that's, um, that's necessarily determin, determinism, is it? Just to say, if I was in your shoes, uh, you know, like trying to see things from another person's perspective, realizing that we can't, but trying to empathize, um, I don't really see the deterministic angle in that one. Uh, it's more difficult for my ego to tell me stuff like, you earned it all. Congratulations, you, you handsome genius, you. You pulled yourself up by your own free choice bootstraps. You're so self-made. You were born into a cabin built by your own two hands. Good job. Okay, well, you do a nice job of taking those things to the absurd there, Paul. But um, I, do you love yourself enough to to really feel a sense of accomplishment at things that you've done without going into pride. Because what I see you doing here is like really skewering 
the, the, the egomaniacs of the world that think their shit don't stink. And you're going, nah, I don't want to be like that. And so I don't want to get all filled up with ego. But I hope that, I hope that you don't then take it to the other extreme and excoriate yourself when you don't need to. Because I'm quite certain that there are things in your life that you could feel proud of. And by proud, I don't mean like the negative kind of pride. (laughs) I mean that you really feel a genuine sense of accomplishment and you can give yourself a pat in the back and say, yeah, I I did a really good job and I own it. Because that's true, I did. Um, But so what I see you saying there is that determinism, it's a control on having you get a big head. Um, And I can appreciate that. But again, I don't think that you need determinism. You just need a, a recognition of the douchery of people <laughs> that are like that and the desire to choose to not be that way and <laughs> take that. <laughs> uh, reduction judgments, re- re- reduced judgments of others. Um, yeah, it still happens for sure, but when I get pensive about the action someone else took, I can see doorways to explanation of their behavior, which do not amount to they did it on purpose to harm me. Yeah, but you can do that on both sides. You can do that whether you think that it's determined or free will. It's 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 quite similar to the first one. I find it easier to forgive others and easy even the second one easier to accept myself past mistakes. It's the same mechanism at play. Um, and and maybe an advantage of having that metacognitive sense of awareness here is that you are able to see that the determined thought that first arose in your mind is only telling a part of the story and it's telling a part of the story based on your past experiences past thoughts and feelings and if you train yourself you can you can train yourself to really examine that thought that arose and ask is it true this person should do this this person should do that well, is that true my my brain's telling me you know my my thoughts are telling me this but i can question them i can challenge them and if I've made it a goal to reduce my judgment of others, then I can consciously examine my thoughts and the stories that I'm telling to eradicate things that are unfair and untrue. Um, I was able to accept the most of my extended family will never leave the church um, and don't really need to. Yeah, and you can do that. Like, all you're doing there is... Um, letting go of your need to control other people and um, and maybe that's a determined thing that you didn't have any choice in doing or maybe you've made the choice that hey I you know I can't change them anyway I'll just let them be what it is they're gonna choose this or they're determined you know like I don't I don't really see that determinism or free will is the mechanism that allows you to accept it more but it's it's how you came to that place as, as you were reflecting on it, it helped you get to that place and I honor that I appreciate that I'm glad you're in that place um, a shift in from the mindset of uh, retribution and punishment to a mindset of harm reduction and rehabilitation in our justice system yeah that's that's good um, but how 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 do you rehabilitate a criminal if 
the criminal isn't free to make different choices than they've made in the past. And by free, that doesn't mean they could choose anything. It just means that in that metacognitive state, there's options and they can make a choice to pay attention or to not pay attention. You know, not on everything, but yeah, anyway. Uh, accepting your family members with cognitive distortions like schizophrenia and bipolar and dementia. Um, yeah, but, but here when you're getting into like mental illnesses, like I, I, I do side with determinism that we are, we're always constrained by our brain, by our biology, by our genetics, um, you know, by, yeah, we're, by, by the filter, the way that our brain filters the outside world and even our inner experience of the world. We're always constrained by that. Um, when you introduce mental illnesses, it becomes even more obvious how outside the normal range of constraint this type of behavior is. And in some cases, it really reduces the ability that people have to... To, to reason and to take advantage of that metacognitive state of awareness. And maybe it eradicates that altogether. I don't know. But that it, it made it easier for you to accept your family members because you realized um, they're not doing this on purpose. Uh, that's beautiful. So anyway, thank you, Paul. So yeah, I, I appreciate the back and forth. Um, and, uh, yeah, you're a cool dude, man. Put down the weapons that you use against yourself. You don't need them anymore. Hey there, thanks for listening all the way to the end. Now, I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have more to say about this topic, and I'm going to do that with a follow-up behind-the-scenes sharing time episode on Patreon. So... If you're in a position where you can throw me a few dollars each month to support the work that I put into creating this podcast, please come and support me on Patreon, where you'll also get access to additional content. Did you know that I also create sharing time episodes that are available only to Patreon subscribers? I've been doing that for a few years, so there's a lot of content there that you can have access to. So please come and support this podcast if you can. I greatly appreciate it. Hi, this is Hillary, Matthew, Ryan, Carol, Keith, Ashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And if you really like what you hear, give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes. I did. I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? My worst crime is an inside job. Dark thoughts taking over like an inside mob. I tune into the scene between the eyes. And take a breath. Thank you for listening to Infants on Front. I sit still and watch the thoughts flow past me. Never mind the future, never mind what the past be. I like to jump and let the universe catch me. Three, four, watch the beauty blow past me. I keep my pockets like destination in sight. Keep my actions elevated to compassionate heights. I'm walking past the fight, laying down arms of the night. Choosing love when I pick up this mic. Hey there, do you love the Mormon church? 
Do you love disco? That music that made a young, thin, still somewhat heterocurious John Travolta point up to here and then down to there and twist and pose and spin his hands around and around and around, turning otherwise disparate and contradictory physical gestures into a single, unified expression of disco art? Do you also like Mormon history? The way it can be spun around and pointed here and pointed there and have it retroactively say that God has been composing a complex orchestral masterpiece when it's really basically just impromptu. Do what you feel when you feel a disco moves on a dance floor. Well, if you like all that mashed up stuff I just said just right now, then you're in luck. Because today, newly released and newly available at a record store or an internet website near you, we have the best of Mormon disco hits. The officially official and authoritative super awesome companion to LDS.org's collection of history-spinning, floor-to-ceiling-pointing disco dancing essays where the Mormon church, continuing the long-standing traditions of its treasure-seeking prophet, Joseph Smith, does what it has always done. Who can forget this Mormon disco favorite? All about the importantly important things that priesthood allows for both worthy men and worthy women in our sacred holy temples. Do a little ordinance, promise to slit your throat a bit for love, get in doubt tonight. Or how about this nifty little ditty, which explains the origin and line-upon-line evolution of the priesthood, which, I'm sorry, has evolved as far as it's going to evolve, ladies. I was a pure descendant of that righteous father Abraham. My sneaky European seeds of Ephraim made me so pure and can stop humming this classic jam about words and their ever-changing evolutionness, just like God, from alpha to omega meanings. What you gonna do? Do you want to get some keys? What you gonna do? Be ordained with some keys? Get down with it. Hey, lady, get down with it. No need for cranking. Get down with it. We've got you covered. Get down with it. Just rediscover. Get down with it. There may be history. Get down with it. It says we disagree. Get down with it. We just can't hide it. Get down with it. So we'll redefine it. Now, how you gonna use it if you really don't know what it is? Stop breaking down the walls. Get away from sacred walls. Ladies. God's the one who gives it, so you really ought to point to him. We can't ordain you now. Blame God, it's not our fault. Yeah, it is. Get down with it. Hey, ladies. Get down with 
No need for cranky. Get down with it. You can't correct it. Get down with it. Just do it. Accept it. Accept it. And who could not unforget this little trip down memory hole lane? directly from the brain of a young Joseph the Prophet while gazing upon an even younger Fanny Alger or any of the other dozen or so subsequent serving girls he magnanimously gave to his wife Emma. Girl, I've known you very well See you growing every day I've never been lovely far But now you take my breath away An angel with a sharpened sword Told me that it's time for you and me to throw our cares away. Move closer to that veil of hate. Here in my arms you'll find a paradise. Your only chance for eternal happiness. If you reject me now, you'll spiritually die. Oh, say you'll always be my baby. Let me help you with that clasp. We'll do this forever with this new and everlasting. Something more than a woman. More than just another woman to me. Oh, so much more. More than a woman. More than just another woman to me. Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.